Welcome to Funeral Directors Chat, where funeral professionals discuss industry topics, trends, and news. And now your host, Nancy Bourbon. Hi, I'm Nancy Bourbon, your host for Funeral Directors Chat, a podcast providing funeral professionals with insight to current industry topics, news, and trends. Today, it's my great pleasure to have my friend Raymond Akins from the Chicago area join me. And Raymond has quite a resume here. He's an adjunct professor at Malcolm X College in Chicago in mortuary science. He has an MBA in finance and economics, and he has been an investment banker for the state and government finance sectors. He has taught, um, besides Malcolm X College, he's taught in the uh, public school system. And on top of all that, if, if that isn't enough, he is a second generation funeral director. So welcome, Raymond. Hi, Nancy. And um, you want to talk a little bit more about your background or? Well, uh, I guess it'll come out in, in the course of the discussion. Uh, I, I don't want to seem boastful. I want to avoid sounding arrogant. Uh, I just want to say what I do. It, it's, a, it's a humble attitude that I bring to the table. Uh, I'm always curious uh, about our industry and where we're going. I think it's important to understand and watch for trends. And I do a lot of work in that area, and I can talk about maybe a wide variety of things, if you want. Okay, great, Raymond. Well, today we're basically going to talk about two things. One is change. And you know there's a lot of change going on in the funeral service industry. There has been for some time. And uh, funeral directors are really uh, interested in to find out the financial aspect of the changes that are happening. And you're fully qualified to speak to that, being a former investment banker and your background in finance. The second thing that we'd like to chat about is the impact that African-American funeral homes have on funeral service. Um, so let's, uh, let's first talk about change, Raymond. What do you say? Well, you know, I, was, I think about this all the time because I started out in the funeral service uh, at the early age of seven years old. When my dad was a, a funeral director and took me into the funeral home for the first time. Now, that means that I'm in my 60s now. That means I've been around funeral service for over 50 years. It's gone from a love-hate relationship to one that just fascinates me to no end. And I've seen or observed over all this time uh, a, a change, but nothing like what we're seeing today. This is this is so tumultuous. What's going on in our industry? That you know, my fears are that uh, unless uh, owner operator takes a very proactive approach, and for the first time, I think employees as well, uh, they have a vested interest in seeing their uh, uh, their owner operator uh, survive. Uh, and we'll, I'll get more into that later on, but uh, so many things are converging all at one time that it's, it's, I liken it to the deck chairs on the Titanic being rearranged. That's a good analogy. Um, and it's a new operating environment, and many of the traditional roles that we've grown accustomed to have, um, have changed, haven't they? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and against that backdrop is uh, going back to, I think I read just recently, going back to the 1980s. From the 1980s till now, the death uh, rate has declined by some 30%. The last 10 years, uh, according to one industry watch group, uh, the death rate has declined every year in a row. 
Now, you can imagine the impact that that's going to have on funeral profit margins. Also, however, uh, there's been this tendency or this trend uh, with uh, movement to alternative funeral services, which is knocking out in the product mix the the percentage of traditional calls. Now, traditional calls were historically the bread and butter of our industry. And as that uh, percentage shifts, the proportion goes from uh, traditional to non-traditional. And uh, David Nixon, I don't know if you know David Nixon, he's a fairly noted industry analyst. Uh, he thinks in the next year and a half or so that traditional calls are going to, uh, I mean, non-traditional are going to uh, outpace the, the number of traditional calls. Now, the profit implicate implications behind what we've just mentioned are just uh, uh, horrendous. And consider from this standpoint also because it's something that my own family is having to deal with. Uh, we've seen this shift come about so fast and yet the sunk costs we've made in our facilities, our, our plant you might say, we have a business that was heavily geared towards serving uh, traditional families, meaning, you know, burials and embalming. And our facilities really reflect that. We are no different from any other practitioner out there who, as the, uh, the trends switch away from uh, traditional funerals, we find ourselves uh, receiving a lower return on that investment, and that complicates the profit forecast. And then, of course, you have, uh, the, in the current environment, uh, costs rising relatively fast, faster than uh, revenues in some cases, in many cases. So if you project outward, just say over a period of five years, and you've got uh, alternative services growing, you've got uh, inflation factored into your operating costs, this is a, a classic squeeze. And I'm really afraid uh, we're at a juncture where uh, we may have some firms you know, not survive this transition. Right, it seems that way, but isn't there an industry shakeout looming on the horizon? I think so. I think very much so. That's the case. Uh, you know, we've got our independent operators who uh, at one time were the, I don't, I, and I haven't seen any recent statistics, but uh, certainly they are a significant segment in the market. And how many are mom and pop, I really can't say, but I do know that the level of sophistication required to operate the funeral home in the past is not as demanding as it is today. Thus, if you had someone who was happy, you know, a nice growth and and operating um, their funeral home oblivious to what was going on in the larger economy, you find you wake up one day and you find out I don't like this work anymore. I'm under a lot of stress. I'm trying to maximize my revenue. I can't grow. Uh, you look at what customers want today, too, and this is the other thing. If you haven't made investments in your facility in the past, you know, people like uh, a, a large location that can uh, uh, hopefully accommodate, let's say, a dining activity, ample parking off the street. They want, uh, in, in this case, this is something we've seen a lot in the African-American segment, and that is as Black people have moved up the economic ladder and moved into the corporate sector and taking jobs. If there's a death in their family, they're likely to have the funeral attended by their white uh, counterparts at the job. 
So you don't want to use the old a neighborhood funeral home that, let's say, is a little antiquated. When I say an antiquated facility, I mean a, a neighborhood funeral home. And what have people done? They've relocated out of their neighborhoods. They're dispersed all over the country. So you want a modern facility because, you know, let's face it, a lot of this deals with impressing the people who attend. And that becomes a big factor. So all this has impacted funeral service at a time when a defensive strategy, if not implemented years earlier, or if you've not stayed on top of it, you find yourself caught in a confluence of negative trends. Mm-hmm. Now, you, we had spoken um, another time about the trends, and you had emphasized that if you live and work in an urban environment, the number of calls that you're going to be receiving are going to be much higher than if you live in a suburban area or you have a funeral home in a suburban area. Absolutely. You know, Nancy, at one time I worked for a corporate acquirer and we tended to use uh, approaches that were in line with my background in in corporate uh, finance. Uh, And we were able to access uh, local data about our marketplace, and we did do studies. We did an acquisition in Chicago in a neighborhood that was changing, but had, you know, it was becoming predominantly African-American. But it had a large heritage clientele of, you know, majority culture or white. So our goal was to keep the majority culture clientele and grow that as well as tap the, uh, the change demographics in the local area. Uh, we had acquired a facility in Chicago on the south side and we wanted to know what was the nature of our market. What what information could we glean from looking at some of the databases that were accessible? One of the things that really struck me was when we looked at owner operators in our market and we focused on the firms that were doing a significant volume of calls. And what I mean by that, I would say at least 250, 300 calls and up. And uh, we were also looking at the suburbs as areas of possible expansion. Our research uh, concluded that the suburbs were not at all ripe uh, to look at from a standpoint of investment at that time. And the reason was the demographics. Uh, typical suburb, uh, at least out, you know, in the Chicago area, what we found was that uh, they were occupied the the residents were mostly starter households. In other words, a husband, wife, and a child. We had information on income. We had information on the number of people per household. And when you see things like average age, 23 or one or 2.1 residents per household, you're basically, basically you were talking about a nuclear family and, and a family with maybe a small child. Now, contrast that with the zip code or census tracts in the uh, inner city, uh, the average age per household was significantly higher in the high 30s or, or going into the 40s. Uh, and what that tended to indicate, uh, in addition to the fact that we had uh, maybe 2.8, 2.93, 3.4, sometimes even four residents per household, 
you were talking about a situation more than likely where you had uh, uh, the a nuclear family and grandparents in the household at the same time, or uh, just a high concentration of people who were significantly older. Now, when we correlated the high volume locations with the uh, census tract data, it became clear that where you could probably get the highest return on your investment would be by not locating in the suburbs, but concentrating your investment in the inner city areas where you had those high population concentrations. We concluded that Chicago was open. In other words, no operator had a control over uh, the market. New entrants could come in and quickly grow their business by really taking market share from the other local operators. Uh, in other words, there was no person by on the basis of reputation, stature in the community or whatever, who uh, had a hold on the, uh, on the market share. And um, therefore, we concluded they were not a threat. So there were no there were no significant barriers to entry as there are in the South where you have maybe fourth and sometimes even fifth generation funeral directors. Exactly. I'd heard so much about that and uh, I've never had the chance to observe it as long as I've been in Chicago. But I do understand in parts of the South, there are operators who are like either legendary or so well respected by the community that they really don't have to go out and market, or at least back then they didn't have to. Now, whether or not that's changed, uh, I suspect nobody can afford to just sit back on their laurels and expect that the business is going to come through the door and continually coming at a rate that would allow them to uh, prosper. Now, here's something that I'd like to run by you. There's a um, there's a belief I think in the that uh, African Americans spend more on funerals than um, Caucasians or any other majority race. That too, I think, is an urban legend, Nancy. I remember years ago, like back during the 1990s, when I was expanding, I guess my activity by becoming involved with a lot of associations and what have you, and I was reading articles about the industry. You know, I felt we had, uh, when, and I say we, when I, I felt African Americans had a special place in funeral service because it was widely presumed that African Americans spend more money on funerals than, let's say, the broader or the majority culture. I mean, by that, I mean whites. Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that was true back then, it is certainly not the case today. There was a period leading up to 2006, 7, 8, where spending in this country was just on a significant tear. And it had been on a growth trend going back several years. And I really believe now in hindsight that many operators took benefit from the surge in spending by the revenues that they experienced in their funeral operations, thinking that they were doing things right and that this would continue. However, uh, in 2008, uh, the situation from a financial standpoint got pretty dire and the country came very close to an economic collapse. Credit, which is, uh, is now, without being too technical, incomes had been flat to stagnant for well over a decade, yet spending continued on a tear. 
And what that indicated, people were uh, spending with credit. They were using credit, and credit was freely available. After 2008, the, the credit spigot closed. And with that, there was a significant downturn in spending. And again, without being very technical, uh, you could see the lack of spending reflected in the expansion of the government fiscal deficit. In other words, uh, the administrations had tried very hard to offset the drop in spending by uh, substituting deficit spending. And it gets even worse than that because uh, the savings rate prior to the uh, 2008, I call it a crash, uh, the savings rate had dwindled down to approximately zero. And it has recovered Spending has somewhat stabilized, but in the last two, three years, when you look at the source of that spending, you find that 85% of the support has come from government transfer payments. In other words, we've had people on extended unemployment benefits. We've had, you know, work-ready work programs to help offset the collapse. And then, believe me, it was a major collapse. And that's the key that I think a lot of operators in our industry maybe have never paid any attention to, but good times bear a high correlation with the overall level of spending in the U.S. economy. In other words, we look at aggregate spending. The economy is, what, 70% kept alive by uh, consumer spending. Easily 60% of the households in the United States right now are financially strapped in one form or another. They're afraid they may lose their jobs, so they held back on spending. There's another 20%, and when we combine that, I'm talking about 80% of the economy, uh, that's adding the 20% that represents the middle class. And they're in just as bad a shape because it is the middle class who historically finances by way of credit. Uh, they've got a mortgage on the house. They've got kids they're sending to college. They've got automobile notes. They own several or so credit cards. And the source of their cash flow was also uh, the growth in the value of the home. Now the home prices have collapsed. They've been cut off. The value of their real estate holdings and far more people have real estate as a key uh, component of their uh, retirement or investment portfolio as opposed to uh, stocks. And if they are their stocks are usually in a 401k or something through their job. So when you have uh, job loss, you have decline in home prices, you get layoffs, uh, a huge number of people are either unemployed or underemployed. This constitutes a significant drag on spending. And as a result, revenues uh, we're seeing cases, I talked to florists, I talked to the, uh, the people who print the bulletins or prepare the obituaries for, for funeral services, uh, talked to the owner and operators of livery services, they're all seeing collapse in, in their level of revenue. And that collapse, unless we have a recovery, it's very likely the spending could stay suppressed for years. And the impact from that is going to mean even more uh, competition in our industry as, as owner-operators scratch their heads and figure out how am I going to survive. 
And also, I think a lot of people are not carrying life insurance as a priority as they did years ago. Because if you're unemployed, you know, you have to cut back on your expenses. Yeah, and, and not only that, uh, we're finding a higher incidence of loans outstanding on life insurance policies. I, I, and I'm sure, again, that's just a reflection of the level of economic stress that's out there. So a uh, person comes in, they've got a, uh, an insurance policy, uh, you call to verify the status of the beneficiary, and you also discover at the same time that there's a loan outstanding. So there's not as much available uh, relative to uh, the face value. Mm-hmm. If any at all. I mean, a lot of people don't have policies at all. And, and, and when you talk about policies, I think inevitably you're going to be talking about health insurance. And, and that is another really sour spot with our economy. Many people uh, have lost jobs and therefore, you know, don't have health insurance. And if they're compelled to have health insurance, you know, above all else, then the cost of the premiums are significantly higher. Even where you've got, a, in our industry, owner-operators uh, who have a health insurance benefits for their employees, they've continually had to up the copay or or do other measures to uh, help carry insurance for their staff. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we have a lot of funeral operators out there who offer their staff no health insurance whatsoever. Okay, so this is a lot of gloom and doom. Um, right. Is there is there a golden, golden opportunity wherein survival will be a function of how swift companies make the necessary adjustments? Absolutely, Nancy, and this is the whole thing. I sometimes may come off like a doom and gloomer, but I've looked at the projections, and I'm telling you, in another 10, 15 years or so, this death rate is going to take off like a rocket, and we're going to see all, you know, a, a huge surge in growth as boomers, people like myself, uh, move into the uh, extreme age brackets. Um, I think by 2025, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I'll say this, the latest statistics estimate that one in five people in the U.S. population will be uh, uh, fall into the category of oldest old. This is coming a generation away. The growth is going to be fantastic. So looking at it from an opportunistic standpoint, this is the perfect time. If you're an owner-operator and you want to be there to capture all that growth, now is the time to stop being a mom and pop, stop being lazy, but actually begin to institute some strategic planning. Bring that into your operation. Manage your costs and prime yourself uh, so that you're poised to take advantage of all that growth. And it's not going to be easy if people have been lazy and if they don't have a, a great deal of financial background. I've always said that it's the associations right now who can come to the rescue of their own counterparts. So we've got to begin educating, uh, training uh, uh, people, at least those who want the help, and how they can best manage their survival going forward because I really do. We started out talking about shakeouts and I really think uh, you're going to see some attrition uh, going forward. Already, um, uh, I forgot, uh, I think it's the Census Bureau and they do 
surveys in our industry every five years. And the most recent is from 1997 to, I think, 2002. And you can already see the attrition. Now, if I said 2002, that meant that the latest survey, which is in the process of being uh, uh, published, and it should come out sometime maybe this year or next year. But I think when those numbers are published, we're going to see even a greater level of attrition out in the marketplace. It's the worst time to sell a business if you're an owner and want to get out because the value of the asset has been impacted by the severe economic downturn. And oftentimes what someone invested in the way of a lifetime into their property, they're not going to receive the dollar they think they properly do. And what that means is you need to focus on how to survive so that going forward, you maximize the value and you have something of value to pass on to your heirs. So what am I saying? I'm saying to some extent, many of us are stuck in this business at a time when we want to get out. But to get out right now, you would be, uh, there's a term we call leaving money on the table, meaning you wouldn't capture the maximum value that you think your property. Well, uh, Raymond, what are the factors that you look at in determining the likelihood of who is going to survive this and who is going to fail? Uh, I, you know, Nancy, I'm going to pl- I'm going to put in a plug for you right now because thanks to you and and you put me in touch with all the different funeral uh, chat services that we have. I've heard people talk, and I see I see some guys and and women really tapping this thing right. And I don't know if it's okay to name names. Sure. I won't, no, go ahead. I won't, well, you know, McDougal, I really like that guy. Uh, and, you know, he's taken uh, his caskets out of his showroom, uses a digital display. He's used to freed up space to put in uh, repass facilities. And, of course, he's got the bedroom, which is a really popular concept. And not very many people have heard about it. And uh, are you familiar with what I mean by oh, the yeah, bedroom? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Beecham's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He's what I – it always strikes me as a leading-edge operator and a prototype of the person – who's poised to survive and go through this period. And, and again, when we come out of this, operators like Beecham will probably have had opportunity to expand his locations if he wants, because over the next 10 to 15 years, he's going to have offers uh, for people who want to get out and he could, he, it would be a buyer's market. He would be operating in the buyer's market. Now, if he chooses to stay as he is or where he is and grow his business, He's doing everything to maximize uh, his revenue. And then that's that's my assessment. Right. And I think we do have to embrace green burials and we have to embrace other types of ceremonies that that baby boomers are bringing to the table and and demanding. Um, They're demanding personalization. And if we don't provide that, you will be left behind. Isn't, isn't that the story of the boomers? I mean, like, they've always upset the apple cart. They've changed. They, as they've moved through life, everywhere they've gone, they've left, they've, they've left destruction of the old way and created something new. I see no reason why death, or death care is not going to follow suit. Absolutely. Now, our business is supposed to be recession-proof, isn't it? That's another urban legend. Well, we, we're hitting them all today. <laughs> uh when you 
look at uh, back during the 80s, uh, again, when we had a much higher death rate, when you look at the operating margins in our industry, they were like 14% or so. Uh, however, from that point on to now, they've been reduced by almost a factor of uh, uh, two-thirds. So either the drop in spending, the rise in operating costs, something is happening in our industry that is making this model less profitable. And we're seeing attrition now. And in the healthy industry, you always see new entrants, you know, jumping to go in and, and the competition uh, getting even more fierce. Certainly the competition is fierce, but the number of operators out there is in decline. Right. And I think that you had brought up Beecher McDougald, and he's in Laurenburg, North Carolina. And he does some very clever things. Um, yeah, I agree. He's very compassionate, and he has the bedroom situation where yes. if somebody comes in and they ask for direct cremation, he, um, out of his own pocket, he will uh, wash the body and partially embalm and put them in the bed for a, a short visitation. And nine times out of ten, somebody comes from out of town and they say, you know what, let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and do a visitation with Grandma. And But if, if they don't, he will still give them a, a direct cremation and he won't charge them. So he's known for his compassion. He also has a full kitchen and dining room area. And so he's look, He's actually selling other things. And I know a number of um, funeral homes in the Northeast are actually installing Starbucks and Seattle's Best. Mm-hmm. So during visitation hours, they're making a revenue on, on coffee and croissants and the like. So I think a lot of um, funeral directors are looking to make to increase their revenue by offering other products and services. Did you see the article about the operator? I think it was in the Boston area that uh, opened a, a pub in his garage. Yes, I did. <laughs> well, I don't think you can do that here because I know in New <laughs> I know in New York you can't serve food or drink. Um, yeah. In Connecticut, you can serve food, but you can't serve drink. Well, my point was the creativity. Yes. You know, they're, they're looking at every angle. And these are guys who are going to survive, not the ones who sit back and complain and, you know, say the industry or the business sucks. I mean, when it comes to your survival, you know, the, the race goes to the swift. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, what about education? Do you think it's a real, do you think it's important to be educated? And what level of education do you think is uh, viable for mortuary students today? The Funeral Service Foundation survey from last year uh, that I really studied uh, hard. I looked at their, their data. And it's really interesting because they make several conclusions. One is that uh, the outlook for the future is, as we've already talked about, there will be less operators. Uh, there will be more funeral homes closing in the future than it will be funeral homes opening. Uh, that, that means that from an employment uh, standpoint, the job market is kind of becomes kind of iffy. Yet, the same study, they say at no time in the history of the service has the demand been for skilled uh, funeral service professionals? That is, you know, people who are uh, adept in the social area, uh, people who use the latest techniques, and instead of being order takers, um, you know, I'll give you one example. Uh, when I say order takers, that's the old model where family comes into the funeral home, uh, they sit down before a director, the director pulls out all the forms, 
And so I was asking questions, you know, the, you know, give me the vital statistics, what day you want to, in other words, that's an order taker. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the new pro- funeral industry professional is going to have to be someone that the family comes in, they pick up no pen and paper, and they spend at least 15 minutes finding out about the deceased family. What was, what was their love like? What did they like? And as the family begins to tell the story, you get all kind of ideas as to how to uh, show them options that they might very much appreciate. Right now in our industry, the core professionals tend to be seniors. They tend to be people who have not, uh, not very conversant in this new technology, this new ways of interacting with families. So just the young ones, the people who are on top of that, who can demonstrate some understanding, who are confident, who are sales-oriented, that's who I want in my business. And this is why they, for the first time, the employee and the employer, their interests have converged. You know, if you, uh, if you have an employee who thinks that his boss or her boss sucks, um, is unfair, the working conditions are deplorable. How, how possible, how is it possible that this operator uh, has got a staff person that is committed to seeing them grow and prosper? So what I'm saying is that as conditions get more competitive, as operating costs make an owner-operator have to look at payroll and maybe some adjustments, it's going to be the person who's gung-ho individual who's got the attitude, who reads up my industry, who studies, uh, you know, the literature, attends seminars, involved in the community, looking at new ways to expand the outreach. That individual, regardless of how many years they've been in the operation, becomes a more critical resource than a person who's been there, let's say, you know, 30 years. It's just going to be, I think, that cutthroat sometime out there. Right, and people people who have a passion for the business and maybe they embrace video streaming and, and other new technologies which can in- increase the revenue of the funeral home. Those are people that you really want to have around. Right. I would think. You've got to commit it to growth and you've got to examine each and every avenue. Right, and a lot of you know a lot of funeral homes are trying to like climb up the Google ladder and get on the uh, the, the top of the, uh, the the first page, but if they're using um, answering services that answer on the fifth fifth or sixth ring with a very sterile message that they'll get back to you, they people are going to go down to the next one on the list and, and continue calling until they get a live person. Yeah, you said something really important, and you know I've funeral home we've been around for over sixty years, and do you know we still have a physical person on the property 24-7. We have two locations, and we do not use an answering service whatsoever. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And you know how much that costs? Can you imagine? But it's it's a cost that we feel is well worth it. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, getting your uh, uh, your facility on the to come up for, on page one of a, a internet search. Uh, that is so amazing. But then when you think about it, I think I had an article I, I shared with you real uh, recently. People 
shop on the internet. They pay their bills on the internet. They meet and other people on the internet. They get information on the internet. They read books on the internet. They join chat rooms and what have you. It, you know, the internet has become such a part of their life. You would virtually have to be a Neanderthal to not consider uh, that funeral service belongs in that whole milieu. Right. And, you know, if you get a if you get a good feeling about the website and you feel like, oh, these are caring, compassionate people that actually put up some articles for me to read so I can get a educated, educated when I make this very crucial decision. Um, you know, the longer you stay on the page, the more likely you're going to receive a call. And if you receive a call, then it's up to the person answering the call to to kind of make the person feel comfortable and um, invite them to come in. Absolutely. Uh, I'm doing work right now with several end-of-life care organizations and a, a research research institute in the Chicago Medical Complex. And what we're doing, we're looking at a number of uh, marketing uh, affiliations, believe it or not. Now, I've done this before with a large hospice operator in Chicago. And when I, at, when I was managing a corporate facility, I actually had at one time, we didn't have a big staff, maybe, you know, less than a, do, a half a dozen. But even our janitor was a certified hospice volunteer. Wow. You know, and uh, there was a period of, oh, of a, in, a, of a, in about a year where 20% of our volume uh, was hospice-related calls. I mean, if there was any funeral home that was making inroads in, in the hospice arena, uh, it was uh, our facility. But I embraced hospice. I felt passionate about it. Uh, I was present in local meetings. I've talked. I had talked to ministers. Uh, we had tried to assemble coalitions. Uh, so we had nurses and other volunteers who really referred us. But all we wanted to do was show how good our service could be. This was not a. a, a in the end, everything is a, a profit making, but. There was absolutely no intention to exploit. Uh, this was a market that, if 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 you really think about it, Nancy, once a person is uh, enters in the hospice, you know their life they've been pronounced terminal, right? Right, right absolutely. Uh, so you know they're going to be. I hate you know. I don't mean to put this in a negative position, but that's an opportunity to come closer uh, with a family who might ultimately uh, result in, um, you know, a call coming to your facility. But the philosophy that we adopted was not that this was a way for us to make money. We wanted people to see what we could do and what we could offer. And if we kept our heart in the right place, we figured the nickels and dimes would take care of themselves. And that tended to be the case. And I'm still very active in the, in the hospice or end-of-life community trying to do new things. Well, you know, in traditional selling, they say people don't buy product, they buy from people. They buy from people they know and, tr and people they trust. And if you engender trust in the hospice families, and they see that you can provide a great service, they're going to automatic. They're not going to shop around. They're automatically going to think of you at end of life. Yes, yes. And I've had many cases where my intention was was to be a. I'm a, I'm a former hospice volunteer, and I've had some cases where, you know, the the survivors or the you know the the caregiver actually had questions, and they said, "Well, I understand you're a funeral director. Can you?" 
can we sit down and talk about a few things? But I didn't do this with the intent. I made it clear that I could be, I could provide information, but I want you to understand, I'm not trying to, to hustle you. And there, there are a couple of things that my experience as a hospice volunteer and funeral director got me into trouble, but I learned, I learned a lot about uh, uh, the business and how best to uh, become close to that uh, demographic. Well, didn't you, adding a little levity, didn't you once drive up in a hearse? Exactly. I was, uh, I, had left, I, was in, I was doing something and I was in a hearse on my way back to the facility, but I was close to the, by the nursing home and I hadn't seen one of my clients in a while. And I uh, said, let me stop by and visit. So I, I pulled the hearse into the parking lot, got out and went up to the front desk and I asked for this individual and Immediately behind me, the person just screamed, and, and turns out it was the uh, the patient's daughter, and she had seen me pull up in the hearse, and she thought I was, her father had died, and I was coming there to to pick up the body. Oh, that's so, terrible! Yeah, so I learned, you know, never. Uh, Never do that. <laughs> Never drive a hearse to visit. You know, don't combine the two right. activities. Yeah, uh, to keep them separate. I'm trying to think ahead. It was another story where I kind of got into a, a, a little bit of a pickle. Uh, oh, and that was when a family, uh, uh, the caregiver asked, had questions, and we went to the lounge in the uh, facility and sat down and, and I, you know, explained things for. Her. Then she asked me for a card. Well, I gave her my card, but one of the hospital workers or nursing home workers saw me passing a card and found, put in a complaint saying I was at the facility hustling bodies. So again, it's a, it, it was a new area, I, but I did uh, make, I think, significant inroads. I much better understand the hospice protocol and um, that's an area where I, I'm right now in the process of really doing, I think, some uh, leading edge work. And I hope to share further with people uh, as time goes by. Right. And that's an area that I think a lot of funeral directors um, can explore, hospice. And, and not uh, hospice, I, I wholeheartedly endorse. I, I can't believe we aren't more involved in the industry like that. And, and you know, again, uh, I guess it's, it always becomes an ethical question. If I enter this, and, and are people going to think I'm trying to hustle bodies? But who better is my argument to discuss aspects of uh, death and dying than uh, a funeral service, who a funeral service provider who also, uh, in addition to their activity, uh, not only endorses uh, proper, you know, health care at the end of life, but encourages uh, activities that prolong life at the same time. I think that's an area that we should be in, in in full force. Right. And I've spoken to other African-American funeral directors, and there are a few that are actually, and this I think this is quite common, correct me if I'm wrong, that are also ordained ministers. Uh, absolutely. You know, <laughs> if you've got a, a, the the ties with our community and the church. And you see, Nancy, you bring up another good point, and this is exactly why 
with all the things I do, I look at aggregate or macro activity. However, you know, all markets are unique. And then when you have a niche market or niche market, which is what the African-American segment is, it's because you find uh, totally different drivers of uh, revenue or totally different uh, kinds of requests for services. Uh, and we differ significantly, and this is, a, the, this is the cultural aspect I'm addressing from, let's say, the, uh, the broader or the majority culture market. So I look at the uh, macro data, and at the same time, I collect data on my particular unique market segment, and I try and determine what drives the growth. Now, why do I say that? It's because, and I'm a, I'm a, um, a funeral celebrant. I'm a certified celebrant, and I've attended the celebrant training, and uh, I've talked to enough uh, operators out there in the majority culture, and they all say the same thing. You know, religion, uh, is, a lot of people are dissing their religious background and, you know, describing themselves as being spiritual. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there's a high demand for uh, services that we call them humanistic. Those are services that are devoid of any religious aspect. But in my community, uh, in the African-American community, it, it, would, it, it would strike some clientele as sacrilegious to even think about having a funeral service without a minister present. Now, very recently, I'm... I've had one or two, but the, they are infinitesimal relative to the volume that we do annually. Uh, those, that is the services where there's no ministers present. However, that's a totally different driver in, in the majority culture or, or white segment. So obviously, uh, a lot of what I do is to look at data and look at national trends and certainly what's happening in the broader market or with the broader culture, they may represent things that are coming down the pike and I'm likely to see more of, in which case I'm making every effort to stay atop and, uh, and study and see in some cases how it can be applied in my own particular market segment. And that certainly paid off uh, in the funeral celebrant area because I've developed especially and again, I really want to be humble when I say this, but it has been so successful uh, where we've taken the, the celebrant aspect, the planning aspect, and I've Africanized it. <laughs> <laughs> and it, oh gosh, we get, we get unsolicited comments all the time from families. And, uh, and, and it's really, as far as I'm concerned, the highest possible compliment I can get when people just walk up to you and say, that was a magnificent service. You, you guys were really excellent. I hope I don't see you again, but if I ever have a need, you can be sure I'm going to call you. That's wonderful. Can you, yeah. um, Raymond, can you share a couple other, um, a couple other areas that African-American funerals are different from mainstream, for lack of a better word? Well, you started out talking about the minister. So, Boy, uh, that's a potent combination in our community to community to be a, a minister and a, a funeral, uh, a licensed funeral director. Uh, as the congregation grows, you've got an immediate hole uh, on that market. And that doesn't have to be, in all cases, a hustle. It really doesn't have to be. Uh, if people love their pastor in our community, we tend to put a lot of faith and confidence in, in our uh, religious leaders. So, and what is that saying? We're talking about trust. 
Mm-hmm. And, and trust becomes an important matter. Of fact, I, I think whether it's the first call or from the time you, you sit down with the family, trust is something that has to be maintained at all time because only with trust are people willing uh, to go along with you, listen to what you have to say, or follow your suggestions without thinking you're trying to just, you know, uh, scam them. Mm-hmm. We have some students in the mortuary school, they're older but who are members of large congregations. And they have rightly mapped out a strategy. And then I'm, I have a lot of confidence that it's gonna work, uh, that they're going to, uh, once they become licensed, uh, let it be known uh, throughout the church. And this can be done from various aspects. You can have a, a health ministry or a death and dying ministry, which they can be a part. Uh, they can do a lot of things, and over time, the the minister and the congregation will come to consider them as you know someone in the family I can go to in the event I have a, a, a need, and, and that is a very crucial, I think, relationship in our community to have a church tie. I love doing services at churches. I prefer that almost to the chapel because I always meet new people. I get involved uh, with the the ushers and staff there and I beg the minister to ride with me to the cemetery because then I got his attention for, his or her attention for, you know, the round trip. And by then I can generally end up being very close friends and a confidant. And I always say, you know, you, you when you come down to sell the chicken dinners, you be here's my car, you be sure to give me a call. That's great. <laughs> well, well, one thing I know, and maybe I spent a, I spent some time in the South when I uh, went to college, and they used to call it keening. Keening. Yeah, keening. When um, you know, when African Americans they they have this very dramatic. Uh, expression of sorrow um and and they overall it's a much more dramatic service with a lot more emotion and a lot of music and and then then a traditional white um service would be you know i've got to look up that term uh i may have heard it before but it's uh, i'm not that familiar uh it's, it's not common in our vernacular in these parts, but uh, certainly in the case of an African-American funeral, you are in any observer, any attendee, in more cases than not, you're going to see something very emotionally charged. Uh, the minister, uh, there's always a message, and in many cases, an altar call. The crowd is worked up into a fever pitch on the basis of vocals and uh, 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 testimony and things of that nature. So, yeah, it's very much like a, a revival in, in many aspects. But, you know, in, in our community, that's always been the case. Uh, going back, even the stereotypes of, uh, of black folk in, in, in religious settings, you know, is, is, is somewhat, you know, exaggerated. But I think the, the, the point they're trying to make is that uh, we're a lot more emotional, a lot more uh, active, uh, kinesthetic, as they call it, if you will, uh, than you might see in, uh, in traditional with the exception in, in our community of the Catholic Church. And even then, I, I, I guess I said this so quickly, 
even then, the largest Catholic churches in, in Chicago will generally be a combination of the, uh, the Catholic liturgy and it'll be Africanized, as I call it, uh, to reflect uh, uh, the cultural tastes that are prevailing. So it is tailored um, to, the, to the demographics of the congregation. Absolutely, absolutely. I know if you go to Haiti, I spent a lot of time in Haiti, um, that's right. That's right. I remember. Yeah. And they, um, you know, they, they, there's a lot of, of Catholic conversion going on down there, but it is nothing, nothing like you're going to see in a Catholic church in the United States. Mm-hmm. Because, there's a, you know, the, from the African roots, um, they have a lot of, you know, a lot of singing, a lot. It's, you know, it's quite Much joyous. more animated. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, yes. you know, you do still have the saints and you do, you do have the core of the religion, but it's nothing like the Catholic services. Um you know, uh, Catholicism used to be extremely repressed. <laughs> you could say that. And a lot of the Catholic funerals, you know, I remember going to as a child and they would say, be quiet, be quiet, don't cry or put the, you know, put the handkerchief up to your face. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they did not want an outpouring of, of grief, especially in the church because it was sacrilegious. Whereas I've been in black churches where it's the exact opposite. Yes. If you don't really show that you're crying and upset, they don't think you love the person enough. Absolutely, yeah. And and, and there's a, a a release, and and there's there's a ceremony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's culturally specific. Your wife is involved in funeral service as well, isn't she? My wife, uh, actually, I'm the in-law in the family business, and this is such a weird story. The original founder had a couple boys, and my dad hung with them. They went off into the military, and when they returned from the war, the founder, who was then working for another facility, had made up his mind. He had gotten to the point where he wanted to open up his own business, and he wanted his boys to go to uh, mortuary school. Well, my dad went with them into mortuary school. And that that relationship started way back in like the, the, the late... 1940 so I've always been around my wife's family they are owner and operator of the the family business that I'm referring to in in this discussion so uh, again to make a long story short I grew up with all the grandkids uh, I spent nights there as a kid working in you know with my dad or I really I would spend the night there watching wrestling and things like that but I spent my time around funeral homes but it was my wife's grandfather who was the founder. Now, growing up with all these kids, I had never, I didn't even know the woman I married. I didn't even know she existed. I was well into the adulthood and working in the business when she came from nowhere to work back in the operation and we met for the first time. And make a long story short, she and I started working at one of the the satellite operations uh and you know one thing led to another the sparks started flying and next thing i know I'm, I'm i'm married to her and it's been it's been a great marriage very happy what a beautiful story <laughs> now uh, are any of your children in, in funeral service 
Well, we've got uh, the three generations. I think last time I talked to you, I mentioned five. That's that's not no. We've been around sixty years, so we've got the next generation in the pipeline now. Okay. We've got uh, one in in mortuary school. Uh, my youngest grandchildren. I've I've taken the youngest. Uh, he was seven years old, about my age, when we bought him a suit, and I've taken him on funeral services with me. He has he has a great time. So we're. I'm trying to sensitize them and maybe uh, put it in a more positive light than what I experienced uh, as as I was coming up. And the the negative part was that my dad was just never home. Uh, you know, you, you know, the, we've talked about that in recent days and weeks. You know, when you, uh, you know, there's going to be a picnic or a fishing outing, and then something comes up and you've got to leave. And 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 you know, my dad was just never around. Uh, the same thing with my in-laws. They grew up the same way, and I think they are. Their parents weren't around so much so that I really believe my in-laws made a vow that, you know, those that have children that they were going to spend, no matter what, they were going to be around with their kids and be and be close mm-hmm. and, and nurture them. So that's that's one aspect of our business that I confess, uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but um, I'm trying to keep as much of the good and, and diminish as much of the bad as I can. Oh, no, you're doing a great job. Now, where do you see yourself going in the future, Raymond? Well, uh, again, this is this uh, this has come from my hospice work. I've been around enough uh, uh, patients in hospice. I've been, I've read the literature. I've studied the, the, the books or the, uh, the, the professors, the people that teach in that area. And if it's one thing they all have in common is that people at the end of life, if they have one regret, it, was, it is that they did not spend more time with their family. And I think that point was driven home to me to such an effect that I really, I really am at this stage in my life, I'm saying, okay, I've had my shot. There's so many things I've accomplished in this industry, so many things I can be proud of. But I much prefer now to pass the baton on and let the young people do that. So I consider uh, education important. So that's why I enjoy my job teaching at the college. And I uh, consider innovation important, which is what I'm always working on in this industry so I can help our family business survive. Now, the other time, um, beeline it to come home and to be with my family. So going forward, uh, I want to be a good servant, but uh, more than anything else, I want to be a good householder. (laughs) No, that's great. And, yeah. and you are, you're influencing a lot of young people and in a very, very positive way, as well as keeping your family funeral home alive. Now, what's the name of your family funeral home? You have a couple locations, right? Uh, yeah, we have a, a location, again, Chicago, where the African-Americans are concentrated is mostly on the Chicago south and west side. And we have locations in each of those areas. Uh, the name of the firm is A.A. Rayner, R-A-Y-N-E-R, and Sons. Raymond, thank you so much today for discussing all the different changes that are happening in the funeral industry, especially with a financial perspective, and the uh, different ways that African-American funeral service is a little bit different than mainstream. 
we've really appreciated listening to your views and uh, getting to know you a little better. Now, if our listeners want to get to know you a little better, can they contact you on Facebook? Well, they can find me on Facebook. It's My last name is A-I-K-E-N-S. First name is Raymond. Uh, I'll be happy to uh, you know, establish contact. And uh, we talked about this in the past, Nancy. And as you know, I would love to give our website. Uh, but what I don't like about our website is that it is hosted uh, by a national vendor. And I've tried to do things on the website and I've been unable to. So this summer, while I'm off away from school and based on some private discussions that you and I have, the goal is to work on a freestanding website and really tap all the potential that's available there. And you know what? Can I mention one other thing? Sure, go ahead. I don't know if you saw the message, but my wife uh, dragged me to a seminar on a search engine optimization uh, a provider uh, that does training in that area. And I say dragged me because uh, I thought I had known, I've done a lot of research in that. And my project for the summer is to be able to develop an independent website and, and tap some of the, uh, the outreach uh, opportunities to take advantage of. This technology, search engine optimization, has evolved way beyond what I was aware. And initially... I didn't think it was anything I could learn, and what I found out was something uh, totally different. Uh, I don't know uh, if you're familiar or have heard of geolocators. Sure, uh-huh. Okay, well, I want to reach the customers who are within uh, a certain radius of our facility. So when people do searches and whatever keywords that I select, I want my name to come up on, on page one. I'm not as interested in coming up on page one on a national. That uh, doesn't make any sense. No, you're um, basically, um, you want to come up in the Chicago area. Exactly. All right, Raymond. Well, thank you so much. So the listeners can get in touch with you on Facebook. On Facebook for now. And it's R-A-Y-M-O-N-D, and the last name is A-I-K-E-N-S. Thank you. That's correct. And I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Nancy, thank you. Ordering cremation urns for your funeral home is easy with UnitedPriority.com. Email your client an earned description from our website or receive tier pricing when ordering more than one item. Help your clients find the right earn with UnitedPriority.com.